In this video, we're going to take a look at cases of so-called Stockholm Syndrome, where someone who has been kidnapped and held against their will subconsciously develops a bond with their captors as a survival mechanism. The condition is seen in around 8% of kidnapped victims, and it can be confusing for the sufferer as they have often been treated appallingly and held in horrific conditions for many years. So why would they feel anything other than hatred for their captor? Well, let's take a look and try and find out. Jan Eric Olsen While the term Stockholm Syndrome is widely known, the case that its name derived from remains relatively obscure. So for our first case we're going to look at Jan Eric Olsen. Jan Eric Olsen was a Swedish career criminal who had escaped prison after failing to return from a furlough visit. On the morning of August 23rd, 1973, while still on the run, Olsen held up a bank in Stockholm's Normalstork Square. He entered the busy bank carrying a jacket on his arm, from which he pulled out a loaded submachine gun that he fired into the ceiling, shouting in a fake American accent, the party has just begun. After wounding a policeman who had responded to a silent alarm, Olsen took four bank employees hostage. He then demanded more than $700,000 in Swedish and foreign currency, a getaway car, and the release of Clark Olofsson, his friend and fellow prisoner who was serving time for armed robbery. Within hours, the police in Stockholm carried out Olsen's request and delivered Clark a getaway car and the money although they refused to let him leave the bank after he demanded to take the four hostages with him. So Olsen and Clark remained inside the bank, with the four hostages holed up in the bank vault. The unfolding hostage situation was beamed across news channels around the world, and negotiators were flooded with suggestions from the public on how to end the siege. However, inside the bank, something extraordinary was happening. A bond was being built up between the hostages and the criminals. One of the hostages, Kristen Emark, complained that she was cold, she was also having a bad dream. Remarkably, Olsen not only provided her with a coat to put around her, but also soothed her after her dream. He even gave her a bullet from his gun as a souvenir. She later even phoned Swedish Prime Minister Olof Palm and pleaded with him to let the robbers take her with them in the escape car, saying, I fully trust Clark and the robber. I am not desperate. They haven't done a thing to us. On the contrary, they have been very nice. But you know, Olof, what I'm scared of is that the police will attack and cause us to die. Similarly, Clark and Olsen confronted another captive, Birgitta Lundbard, and told her not to give up when she was having trouble getting through to her family by phone they allowed her to use. Another hostage, Elizabeth Aldgren, complained of claustrophobia, so Olsen attached a rope to her and allowed her to walk outside the vault to get some air. By the second day, the hostages were on first-name terms with the captors. They became sympathetic towards Olsen in particular. As part of the negotiations, the police commissioner was allowed inside the bank to inspect the health of the hostages, but rather than being relieved to see them, they were hostile towards him and appeared far more relaxed in the company of their abductors. And when he emerged from the bank, the commissioner was in no doubt the hostages would not be harmed as they had developed a bond. Even after Olsen threatened to shoot one of them in the leg to shake up the police, the hostages later recounted how kind he thought Olsen was for saying it was just his leg he would shoot. Ultimately, the convicts did no physical harm to the hostages, and on the night of August 28th, after more than 130 hours, the police pumped tear gas into the vault and the perpetrators quickly surrendered. The police called for the hostages to come out first, but the four captives protected their abductors to the very end. Kristen Ennart yelled, No, Jan and Clark go first. You'll gun them down if we do. In the doorway of the vault, the convicts and hostages embraced, kissed and shook hands. As the police seized the gunman, two female hostages cried, don't hurt them, they didn't harm us. And while Enmark was being wheeled away on a stretcher, she shouted to Olofsson, Clark, I will see you again. 
The hostages' seemingly irrational attachment to their captors perplexed the public and the police, who even investigated whether Emark had plotted the robbery of Olfsen. The captors were confused as well. The day following her release, Elizabeth asked a psychiatrist, is there something wrong with me? Why don't I hate them? Psychiatrists compared the behavior to the wartime shell shock exhibited by soldiers and explained that the hostages became emotionally indebted to their abductors and not the police for being spared death. Within months of the siege, psychiatrists dubbed the strange phenomena Stockholm Syndrome. Strangely, even after Olofsson and Olsen returned to prison, the host made jailhouse visits to their former captors and the two criminals received many letters from women admirers. Olsen was released in 1980 and went on to marry one of the many women who sent him admiring letters while in prison and moved to Thailand. In 2009, Jan Olsen released his autobiography entitled Stockholm Syndrome. Natasha Maria Kampusch Natasha Maria Kampusch was born on February 17, 1988 in Vienna, Austria. She was the youngest of three sisters, and her parents separated when she was very young, and she spent a difficult childhood alternating between both parents' houses. On March 2, 1998, 10-year-old Natasha had just returned to her mother's house in Vienna after a holiday with her father. She left the house in the morning to start the short walk to school, but she never made it. A huge search was conducted for the schoolgirl, and police concentrated on a white minivan that a child witness said he saw Natasha being pulled into by two men. However, despite 800 minivans being searched, including that of her abductor, Natasha could not be found. Another line of inquiry was that Natasha had been taken out of the country, as she had had her passport on her when she disappeared, but again no sign. In reality, Natasha was being held in a tiny cellar beneath the garage of communications technician Wolfgang Pritlopel's home, less than 30 minutes away by car from her mother's house. For the first six months, Natasha was imprisoned in a tiny cellar room beneath a trap door in the garage. The soundproof room measured just five square meters, with no windows and a reinforced concrete door concealed behind a cupboard. After the first six months, she was allowed out in the day and started spending more and more time in the house with Wolfgang although she was sent back to her dungeon to sleep at night. She had access to books, TV and radio, but was not allowed to watch any live broadcasts. Wolfgang also regularly brought her gifts, but to dissuade her from escaping, he told her that the house was booby-trapped, and if she tried to escape, he would shoot her with a gun. During her captivity, she was abused, beaten up to 200 times a week, and spent most of her time doing housework and cooking. Natasha was also starved to weaken her physically so that she could not escape. She was also psychologically manipulated into believing that her parents had refused to pay ransom for her release. During the last years of her captivity, Natasha was given more freedom and was allowed to roam around in the garden. And Wolfgang even took her out on trips. One time, she tried to escape by jumping from a moving car. On August 23, 2006, after over eight years of a torturous existence, Wolfgang let his guard down. When he was in his garden with Natasha, she was hoovering his car when he took a phone call and was distracted, Natasha saw her chance to escape and jumped over a fence to freedom. But initially nobody helped her, ignoring her pleas for help until finally an elderly neighbor called the police after she frantically knocked on his window. At the time of her escape, Natasha weighed just 41 kilograms, just three kilos more than when she disappeared as a 10-year-old. Wolfgang fled to his friend's house. They drove around Vienna for three hours and he confessed everything, telling him I am a kidnapper and a rapist. His friend let him out of the car, and Wolfgang laid down on some railway tracks until a train ran over his head. 
When Natasha learned about his death, she cried inconsolably and lit a candle for him at the morgue. In the aftermath of her kidnapping, several mental health experts and media reports branded her actions as Stockholm Syndrome, but this is something Natasha categorically denied, saying he was a criminal and her bond with him was a coping mechanism to survive. Natasha went on to do interviews and write books about her experience, and a movie was also made. In another twist, ten years after her escape, Natasha bought the house where she had been held captive, and reportedly spends a lot of time there, although she has had the cellar bricked up. There have been reports that Natasha gave birth to a baby whilst in captivity that died and was buried in the garden of the house. However, this claim has never been confirmed by Natasha. Sean Hornbeck On January 12, 2007, police were investigating an apartment near St. Louis concerning the disappearance of 13-year-old Missouri boy Ben Ownby, who was last seen four days earlier getting off of the school bus. But when they served a search warrant on the apartment of Michael Devlin, not only did they find Ben Ownby, they also found 15-year-old Sean Hornbeck, who disappeared in October 2002 while riding his bike in Richwoods, Missouri, about 50 miles away. Immediately, questions were raised as to how Devlin was able to hold Sean in an apartment for four years without him escaping, despite being seen alone outside of the apartment on several occasions by neighbours, often riding his bike or skateboarding with a friend. He was even seen out with Devlin, having driving lessons, and many people assumed they were father and son. Remarkably, he had also contacted the police on four occasions during his captivity after his bike was stolen. In another twist, it was revealed that Sean had access to a computer and was aware of the appeals his parents were making for a safe return. He even posted on a website dedicated to finding him, asking his parents how long they would keep looking for their son. He signed the post as Sean Devlin. So why hadn't Sean tried to escape? What had Devlin done to brainwash him into staying? Devlin abducted Sean in 2002, and after repeatedly sexually assaulting him, he planned to kill him. He drove Sean to Washington County in his pickup truck and pulled over, then began to strangle him, but Sean pleaded with him not to kill him, and in return, he would do whatever Devlin wanted him to do in order to stay alive, and that is exactly what he did. Over the years, Devlin used many methods to control Sean, and he subjected him to horrific abuse, but eventually Sean became too old for Devlin and sick tastes, and he decided to find a replacement for him. That is when he abducted Ben Ownby, he even took Sean with him, telling Sean that he would be charged as an accomplice to the crime because he was in the truck. However, Sean didn't want Ben to suffer the abuse he had and tried to protect him, especially after Devlin told him he planned to kill him. Luckily for Ben, both children were rescued and returned to their families, and Devlin was charged with 80 counts of sexual assault, kidnapping, and attempted murder. Devlin pled guilty to all counts and was sentenced to 72 life terms. Both Ben and Sean are attempting to live life as normal as possible after such horrific circumstances, and Sean and his family set up a foundation to help find other abducted children. Mary McElroy Perhaps the first case of Stockholm Syndrome was not the case of Chan Eric Olsen, but rather an incident that happened many years before to Mary McElroy. On the evening of May 27, 1933, 25-year-old Mary McElroy was enjoying a bubble bath in the comfort of her home in Kansas City, Missouri, when suddenly four masked men burst into her home and kidnapped her. The men, Clarence Click, Clarence Stevens, and brothers George and Walter McGee, 
intended to hold Mary for ransom, in the hope her wealthy father would pay the $60,000 cost for her freedom. However, Mary did not take the gang seriously to start with, and when she heard they were only asking for $60,000, she laughed and jokingly said, I'm worth more than that. Mary was taken at gunpoint to a farmhouse owned by one of her abductors and was chained to a wall in the basement. After just 29 hours, Mary's father had negotiated her release for the amount of $30,000, and she was released unharmed near a golf course. Just a month after the incident, three of the four gang members were apprehended by the police, and this was the start of a curious turn of events. At the trial, Mary seemed reluctant to apportion any blame to her kidnappers, and spoke of her abductors with sympathy and kindness. And when asked in court to identify the men on the stands as her abductors, she was reluctant to do so. She also testified that the gang were kind to her and never forced her to take off her clothes, and they even gave her flowers before they released her. Mary even met with relatives of the gang and publicly expressed her understanding for them. The extraordinary testimony was talk of the papers, and there were suggestions that maybe Mary had orchestrated her own kidnapping in collusion with the men. For Mary, playing a part in getting her abductors convicted took a toll on her mental health, and on February 10th, 1935, after they were convicted, Mary disappeared from her home. When she was found the next day, she explained that she couldn't take any more and felt like a murderer, as she knew her kidnappers would receive a death sentence. As she anticipated, Walter McGee, the kidnapper's mastermind, was sentenced to death by hanging on March 30th, 1935. But Mary shocked the public again when she publicly contested Walter's sentence. She wrote, Walter McGee's sentence was hung as heavily over me as over him. Through punishing a guilty man, his victim will be made to suffer equally. In pleading for Walter McGee's life, I am pleading for my own peace of mind. Her letter, coupled with her father's support, got Walter's sentence commuted to life in prison. Although Mary never got over the incident, and her mental health continued to deteriorate, to the point she was almost reclusive. When her father died in 1939, that was the final straw. A few months later, a maid found Mary's lifeless body in her bedroom. Investigations revealed that she had committed suicide after shooting herself in the head with a small pistol. She was just 32 years old. Mary's sympathy and relationship with her captors was summed up in her suicide note, which read, My four kidnappers are probably the four people on earth who don't consider me an utter fool. You have your death penalty now, so please give them a break, Mary. Colleen Stan. On the 19th of May 1977, 20-year-old Colleen Stan was making her way from her home in Eugene, Oregon to a friend's birthday party. Colleen decided to hitchhike, something she had done many times before, when a young couple, Cameron and Janice Hooker, stopped offering her a lift. Colleen felt safe, especially since they had a baby in the car. After half an hour of driving, Cameron Hooker suddenly left the road and headed down a secluded lane. There, Colleen was threatened with a knife, gagged, bound, and placed in a wooden box. Colleen went on to endure horrific abuse and torture by the hookers, and was given the name Kay, and was forced to refer to her abductors as Master. She spent up to 23 hours a day locked in the box, that was kept under her captor's bed in their caravan home. Colleen was told a powerful organization called The Company was behind her abduction, and if she tried to escape, the company would do far worse things to her than they ever did. They even forced Colleen to sign a contract that showed she had sold herself into their ownership. After the supposed contract was signed, Colleen was allowed some freedom, but her fear of the company kept her compliant and close to the hookers, and she made no attempt to escape. 
1981, Colleen was even allowed to visit her family on her own, and without breathing a word of what was happening to her, she spent time with her family, who were hugely relieved to see her. They suspected something was wrong, believing she had joined some kind of cult, but didn't push her for answers, not wishing to scare her away from further visits. The day after the first visit, Colleen visited her family again. This time she introduced her boyfriend, Cameron Hooker. The pair looked so happy together that Colleen's mother even took a picture of them. But after the visit, Cameron grew more and more controlling, saying that Colleen had been given too much freedom and he confined her to the wooden box again, where she stayed for the majority of the next three years. In 1983, Colleen was once again allowed some basic freedoms, but things were about to change when Cameron Hooker told Janice that he wanted to take Colleen as a second wife. This was too much for Janice, who had been a victim of sexual, physical, and psychological torture throughout her marriage to Cameron, although she'd been in denial about much of what had gone on. In 1984, Janice told Colleen that Cameron was not part of the company and that they were not watching Colleen or her family. Colleen immediately went to a bus station to escape, but such was the depth of her conditioning, she called Cameron from a payphone to tell him she was leaving, and he reportedly burst into tears. After seven long years, Colleen went home to her family, but she didn't tell anyone what had gone on. Not long after Janice Hooker went to the police and told them that her husband had kidnapped, tortured, and murdered Mary Elizabeth Spanhake, who had disappeared in 1976. The investigation of this claim led to the terrible kidnapping, imprisonment, and abuse of Colleen. In court, both Janice and Colleen testified against Cameron, and Colleen found herself under the difficult cross-examination, wherein the defense attempted to paint her as some kind of willing participant in the nightmare. However, Cameron was eventually sentenced to 104 consecutive terms in prison for sexual assaults, kidnapping, and for using a knife in the process. Although sadly, the disappearance of Marie Elizabeth Spanhake remains unsolved as Cameron faced no charges connecting to her. Colleen Stan studied an accounting degree, married, and has raised a family of her own. 14 years later, Colleen went public about her ordeal and how she coped for those terrible years when she was the girl in the box. So that's five chilling cases of Stockholm Syndrome. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you in the next video, which will be the 1st of October and the start of the best month of the year, the Creepy Marathon Month.